0: This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster.
1: Hey, Ryan.
0: Welcome back.
1: Welcome back. This is number six, right?
0: Number six. We are officially or unofficially the number one podcast, legal podcast in Michigan hosted by lawyers. That's what I'm going with.
1: I'm pretty sure that's unofficial.
0: I think it's officially unofficial. <laughs> I think it's officially if if anybody knows of a podcast hosted by lawyers that is more listened to than ours, send me a DM.
1: Follow us on Tweeters.
0: Yeah. <laughs> tweeters, Instagram, Facebook, we're all over.
1: Um so Ryan, I was thinking about something a couple days ago that I wanted to share with you. And I don't think I've shared this with you before, but I was remembering when I was a tiny baby attorney and one of the older attorneys that I worked with said to me, nobody ever really actually knows what they're doing. You just get better at faking it, which I don't- Are we we
0: still talking about law? Yes. Okay. Just checking. (laughs)
1: But I thought I took a lot of solace in that as a young attorney. Um, and I think to some extent it's true, although not as much as I would have liked the first time I heard it. Right. Because <laughs> I do think you you pick up some stuff. But I do think to some extent, like just confidently going in a direction has some
0: merit. But that's why we created this podcast, was to help give people some guidance and to make them more knowledgeable so that they aren't just faking it.
1: Right. And I think, and I also like, still will plug getting a mentor. Like, I mean, we're sort of mentoring by doing this podcast in an informal way. Um, But I think that it's always nice to have um, a more experienced attorney or an older attorney to bounce things off of or ask questions to. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I do recommend that. It doesn't have to be someone older either.
0: No, I, but as a general caveat also, because I've had friends that have signed up for mentor programs and been sent some people who volunteered who weren't yeah. very good. F- find somebody, look for personal recommendations and seek out somebody who has a genuine interest in mentoring and helping to develop Young professionals.
1: Well, and I think there's something to be said for just naturally finding someone that you have a good rapport with, who you respect, and they know what they're they know what the work is, they know what they're doing. Because um, I, the first firm I was with, like assigned you a mentor, which was very nice of them, but not particularly helpful. <laughs> right. If you didn't gel with your particular mentor, um, and I think the most value that I've found. F- for people who have been my mentor, whether they wanted to be or not, um, was that I naturally respected them, naturally had a good personality mesh with them. Um, so I know that you know formal mentoring programs are well intentioned, and sometimes they work out well. My um, spouse got a mentor through a mentoring program that actually turned out to be a really good deal for him, um, but not everybody's that lucky. So. But right. I that. anyway, yep. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about today, Ryan, was um, that I feel like we see in judgments and orders a lot provisions that just shouldn't be there, like they're out of order. Ha ha. Um, like provisions that are in judgments and orders that maybe shouldn't be in there because they're unenforceable or they're going to backfire on you or what have you.
0: Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I'll have more to say enthusiasm. when we get
0: into the specifics of them.
1: Well, we are going to yes. get into the specifics of them. And I, and obviously again, like, because of what we spend our time doing, a lot of them are going to be family law related, but you can probably extrapolate. Um, and, you know, off the top of my head, <laughs> I will say too, like it, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have maybe someone else read your proposed judgment or your order because sometimes you're putting provisions in there that you think are clear and unambiguous because you've lived the case. Um, but the fact of the matter is someone's going to have to enforce those provisions who hasn't lived the case, probably, and who wasn't there in the room when you mediated and came to an agreement. Um, so you might want to have like a... An, unadulterated look at what provisions you're putting in there to make sure that they're clear and unambiguous. So I think that's, like, in general, there are provisions that folks think are clear, and they are just not. So
0: so let me jump off on that, because, because this is one of those things that I think is going to apply to domestic relations cases, as well as to just general civil cases in general. And you, you've you've you laid the groundwork nicely because in reviewing a number of cases coming down through the Court of Appeals lately, there has been a string of them where there is this disconnect between either mediation slash informal settlement discussions that result in a settlement agreement and then entry of judgment of divorce and a real disconnect between what we thought we agreed to as part of our settlement agreement And then what is actually being put into a judgment? And I think, like, so right off the bat, whenever I'm talking to folks about crafting orders and judgments, and if it's coming out of a settlement agreement or a mediation or a facilitation setting, is to make sure that you are being crystal clear that everybody has an understanding. Break it down as basic as you have to so that you don't have a situation where I think I'm getting this at the settlement, or at mediation. The other side thinks they're getting this. And then when we draft our judgment, we have two very different documents being submitted to the court.
1: Right, oh, it's, it's. I mean, it's the example of the phrase, the devil's in the details. Yes. Right. Because, I, and I think, I like it hasn't been so long since I've mediated a case that I have, I mean, I haven't forgotten that sometimes you are just putting a bare bones settlement On the record with the mediator to get it settled and you may say something like and we'll do a rotating holiday schedule yep and everybody says yes we're going to do a rotating holiday schedule and then you go to draft the judgment and everybody has very different ideas about what that means Um, and I think some of the most difficult cases are cases where I've got two parents who celebrate a very different set of holidays Um and and we can't even agree about what the holidays are that are going to be rotating, let alone how they should rotate. Um so you know, be as specific as you can. And I've also seen judgments and orders come in that just say that parties are gonna rotate holidays on an odd-year, even year basis. And then that first Christmas comes around and nobody can agree about whether or not Christmas Eve was one of those holidays that counted or Christmas was or Passover was or are is are all the nights of Hanukkah a holiday or just the first two or just the first one or like as as someone who's being expected to look at that judgment or order and then enforce it i can't enforce something like that it's so ambiguous and unclear no one's done themselves a favor by leaving it ambiguous and unclear inside the judgment or the order Right. Am I ranting? I feel like I'm ranting a little bit. I mean,
0: but in a productive way, yes. <laughs> um, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to pull up as you're, as you're ranting. Um, there, was, it, there was a really good case that just came down from the Court of Appeals last week. And uh, of course, Google wants to go super slow on loading my case summaries um well you know i never remember cases anyway i can remember facts but
1: if you ask me the name of a case like i'm just calling somebody else because i don't remember the well name this, of the
0: case or anything right and that's why i'm trying to pull it up on the fly so that i can give folks an idea of of what i'm talking about here yeah so it just came down may 13th the case is Cole versus Cole, docket number three five three six eight six if you want to
1: Oh my Pull God. Snore. Oh, you're I such know. a nerd. I just put everyone to sleep.
0: Oh, i um, such but, a geek. But so I am. So here's what happened though. In this case, you, you had the parties go to mediation and husband is, is, is awarded the marital home and, but he's awarded a life estate in the marital home and we are not going down the rabbit hole of, um, you know, life estates and, and, you know, the rule against perpetuities. Nope. Keep um, not doing it. So, <laughs> In any event, they get to the judgment, and both, you know, husband and wife's attorney submit very different judgments. And, um, you know, his argument is basically, well, I was awarded the, I was awarded the home, like I, this. This mediation was contradictory because the, the, excuse me, the settlement mediation was contradictory because I was awarded this home but yet I only have a life estate in it and she gets a life estate if she lives after me. And then I have to put this into a trust for my kids. Like this is totally contradictory. Bottom line is, so either one of two things happened. Either they walked out of that mediation with very different ideas about what they were getting and they couldn't properly incorporate into a judgment or two, he had buyer's remorse afterwards and tried to find a very creative way to get out from under this agreement that he had had come to. Um, What ultimately ended up happening, the court of appeals was like, no, sorry, dude, your mediation agreement did say that you were getting a life estate. And you know, that's, that's what you get. So you weren't awarded it free and clear. These were the terms and this is what you signed up for in mediation as part of the settlement. And so, I guess that's what I'm talking about when we say things like make sure your clients have a very clear understanding as you are, you know, going through these step-by-step so that you don't get to judgment entry and all of a sudden we've got two different judgments being submitted, right? That's a good example of it. The rotating holiday schedule, you know, when you just use generic terms, like parties are going to have an equal parenting time schedule. Cool. What does that look like? Especially if they don't agree.
1: Here's my personal favorite. Parties are going to use the Oakland County holiday schedule. Yeah. Cool. There isn't one. That doesn't exist. It does not exist. doesn't exist. You might be thinking of other counties that do publish a particular schedule, but Oakland County doesn't. So when you put in there that you're going to use the Oakland County parenting time schedule or holiday schedule, it is a document that doesn't exist. So not enforceable. Right? Right,
0: um, and by the way, I've seen people produce something that reads Oakland County front of the court holiday schedule. I'm always like that's not ours. I don't know who made it. It looks nice, but that's not ours. We don't where did have one
1: get that
0: right Where'd you Where did you pull that out of so yeah you, you, you've got to be really careful that when you're coming into drafting your judgments and your orders, particularly following settlement discussions that both sides are walking away with a very clear understanding of what was agreed to. Right. Don't be afraid to break it down. Don't be afraid to get into details. Like, you know, I know time is money, but if you got to spend a little extra time putting on a thorough record, it's going to save you and your client headache in the long run.
1: But here's the thing. I, I, I think sometimes it's a time and effort issue. But I think a lot of times it's, uh, if we get specific now, the whole thing is going to blow up and we're not going to have any settlement at all.
0: Thousand percent.
1: Thousand percent, right?
0: Thousand We've all like, sat in that chair where it's like, the more I talk, the more I'm afraid my client's going to flip this table over and blow yep. this whole thing up.
1: Yep. It's going to blow <laughs> up. So, I mean, I guess you're rolling the dice, whether you want your client to be pissed on the front side or the back side. Like...
0: But but at that point, then if 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 you're already on pins and needles getting to that agreement, it's going to blow up at some point. It's either going to sure. blow up in that room or it's going to blow up when they have to sign that judgment. And well, how many times have you heard attorneys say something like, you know, my client came to my office to sign the judgment and is really upset and wants me to undo this, and it's like, well, when did that start? Did it start at the at the mediation or did it start? when they started talking to friends and family who told them what a raw deal they got, like, when did that start? Because if it started back in mediation, maybe you should have gone through the details because it was going to happen.
1: Well, but I think the issue is more like you, first of all, you walk out of mediation with a settlement that's a little loosey goosey because you wanted to get it settled. And then maybe you draft the judgment and you leave it loosey-goosey because you know if you put the details in there, it's going to blow up. So then you enter a judgment that's loosey-goosey. And then after 21 days, you're like tapped out. I'm done. I'm out of here. This is no longer my problem. And in six months, when that first summer vacation comes up and your judgment is ambiguous or you go to divide up the retirement account and your judgment sucks with respect to that language, it's... It might be on you because there's a two-year statute on malpractice, but also you're not probably, you're not going to have to be involved in the post-judgment litigation about that if it's 21 days after you've entered your judgment.
0: Can you say Lucy goosey again?
1: I'm going to say Lucy goosey as much as you said Dogecoin last time we <laughs> did this. <laughs> and we had a complaint. We had a complaint about how many times you said Dogecoin.
0: I'm not even going to identify who said who complained about that she knows who she is and by the way dogecoin has tanked since then because of elon musk
1: <laughs> so anyway i guess and i think they're all like you know we've already talked about kind of holidays we've already talked about loosey-goosey parenting time provisions and judgments but another one i see that is um sometimes drafted in a an ambiguous manner um are provisions about drug testing or alcohol testing um, Mm -hmm. as like a a precursor to parenting time or a condition of exercising parenting time in a particular way. Because I think sometimes people don't really understand how the testing works and they don't really understand what the mechanics of that are and and what that should look like. And they just know they want testing. So they just put in the words testing. Right. Um, And then you know, they want someone to be held in violation for not testing in the way that they envisioned in their brain, but didn't put on the paper, or someone wants out from under those obligations, and the judgment isn't clear about what it's going to take to do that. Um, So I think you have to at least understand what it is that you're ordering. Like, are you ordering someone to be on a tether? Are you ordering someone to a blow in a breathalyzer or an ignition interlock, and how long is the testing and how is the monitoring gonna be done? And I think you really need to educate yourself so that you're not just blowing by it in your judgment and then ending up with something that's not enforceable.
0: I think another part of that is, um, there's also a timing issue that's associated with that. So for example, When you say to somebody, you're going to have to go ahead and get an evaluation by insert name of substance abuse evaluator, there's a run-up time to that. And so, you know, if your parenting time is being, you know, held off until you complete that process, your client probably should know that it's not going to be the next day. And I see a lot of issues with that where people come to court and say, oh, I thought I just had to sign up for the evaluation. And then it's, no, you have to have it completed.
1: And also... How many orders do you see where some it's like, well, you have to have a substance abuse evaluation to get parenting time, but it doesn't say what happens if the substance abuse evaluation comes back and says, hey, folks, we got a real problem here. Right. Like it just says you have to have one. So I check that box. Check the box.
0: Now time. I'm ready to go. Right. That's not specific just to, to substance abuse testing, right? There's a number of things where when you start doing graduated parenting time schedules and there are certain milestones that have to hit people have a very different idea of what that's going to look like, you know, compared to maybe the other parent. And I, just off the top of my head, I've seen that sometimes with, um, you know, supervised parenting time, you know, so-and-so is going to go to supervised parent is going to go to, you know, supervised parenting time. There's no, how long that's going to be, how many sessions are going to be attended. Um, you know, what are we looking for specifically in terms of the reports? I, you know, again, it's one of those where when you're, I think a lot of it goes back to what you said, Rebecca, when you've got somebody at the table and they're already shaky on coming to an agreement, you don't want to use a lot of words. And, and, <laughs> because you're afraid words that you know, if, I, if I start telling you how much work this is going to be, you're going to get really cold feet.
1: Right. Well, and I think too, with the supervised parenting time, there's some incentive for the parent who wants the supervision who, because they have concerns, right? There's some incentive to just say supervised parenting time and not say anything else because you're not going to bake in a review. You're not going to say until such condition is met, whatever the condition is. Um, It might say until further order of the court. And I see a lot like that because quite frankly, like, if someone's on supervision, I maybe am not going to bake in a review. I maybe am not like, I don't care what the reports say, you know, maybe until you file your motion that you should be taken off of supervised parenting time. Maybe you're just on supervised parenting time until further notice.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I again, I think that's one of those, sometimes the details are going to help you and sometimes they might they might make things a little more arduous for your client you know but you, but you're right especially on those you know and look they're all fact specific but if somebody is is receiving supervised parenting time and and there's a ba- you know not every case is going to be go to go to the supervised facility three times and then boom you immediately go to you know 50 right. 50 overnight parenting time like there there's going to be some things that that the court especially is going to want to look at to see is the next step in the child's best interest. Sometimes you don't just take that next step. Sometimes, you know, there needs to be a hearing to flush it out. And and a lot of people don't want to hear that when they're sitting down. And I understand, look, totally understand that. People don't want to sit down and and be told, wait a second, after I do these things, I might have to come back for another court hearing. Aren't we here to avoid going to a trial in the first place?
1: Well, I I guess, but if you're doing supervised parenting time, And you go in there and act like a lunatic or you're being inappropriate or you're demonstrating that you don't have adequate tools for your toolbox to be appropriate during parenting time, then I don't want the next step to be automatic because I,
0: it shouldn't be. What if they're acting (laughs) loosey-goosey?
1: I feel like this is a trap. (laughs) But I mean, I, I just think, want
0: the I just want the person who complained about Dogecoin to also complain about Lucy Goosey. Is all I'm looking for <laughs> right now. Um,
1: but I think it dovetails into the the next area of provisions that I see that are problematic, and those are, um, and I think you see ambiguity in provisions that talk about getting therapy a lot. Um, and I I think you most people are good about putting a provision in that says you know so-and-so is going to therapy um, at a frequency and duration to be determined by the therapist. But a lot of people don't put that in. (laughs) They just say person's going to attend therapy. Well, do I have to keep going if like I'm released from therapy by the therapist or like, and what is it I'm supposed to be addressing? Like, am I just supposed to go in for a chat for an hour and not really like dive into the issues that, everyone wants me in therapy for or
0: what are we doing? And and this is one, and I've seen this personally on, on cases when I was in private practice where, you know, your judge may have a very specific idea of what they think your therapy requirements should be. So don't leave the hearing without knowing what that's going to be. Ask the question. I mean, I, I had a case where dad's you know, parenting was suspended until he, you know, attended therapy and then, you know, shows up, you know, two months later with the letter from the therapist saying so and so, uh, you know, has attended eight sessions and I think he's totally fine. And, you know, the judge looks at it and is ready to throw it back at you and is like, this isn't adequate. This isn't what I was looking for or sufficient. You know, inquire what is going to be the next step. There's never, you're never going to be in trouble for asking for specificity. You're never going to be in trouble for saying, what is it that that so-and-so needs to do, particularly when you start having these requirements of your parenting time is suspended until you do this.
1: Agree. Um, And I think it's a good idea, too, even for the therapist, to have some specificity in there about what it is that we want to be addressed. Is it an impulsivity issue? Is it an anger issue? Is it issues related to substance abuse or alcohol use disorder? Is it, you know, just continued therapy to deal with life stressors? Is it parenting coaching? Is it co-parenting counseling where you're getting more tools for your toolbox to be a better co-parent? Like, why is it that we're doing this? Is it just because it's a good idea for everybody over 25 to do it because we all like get a little bruised before we get to the age 25? or is it to address a specific issue that is of concern? And if it is, then put it in there so that we can have some sort of guideline because I've seen those letters from, therapy, from therapists too and I find them to be largely unhelpful. And then, no, of course, no one calls a the therapist as a witness, right, to, so that I can ask questions or the other side can ask questions about, you know, yeah, they're showing up and punching their time card for therapy once a week, for eight weeks in a row but do they just sit there and not say anything what are they addressing are they improving like what is it what are we doing that's what I want to know
0: yeah yep I think I think the overarching theme to this might be you know don't be afraid to be detailed but I think that's probably too simplistic for a 30-minute podcast so
1: Probably. (laughs) So, and here's another one of my favorites are the provisions that have a right of first refusal for parenting time. I mean, I can, I've worked for two different judges. Neither of them willingly signs a judgment that has a right of first refusal. And I think putting it in there, if you manage to slip it past a judge who will sign it, um, or, you know, maybe your judge doesn't have a problem with that, is they're largely unenforceable. And they are a great way to have to litigate all the time because the folks who can use a right of first refusal correctly don't need it in an order. And the folks who shouldn't have it want it in an order. Correct. Does that make
0: sense? Yes. It's like when you, it's like when, you know, over in Oakland County, when we put on the SMILE program and it talks about the importance of working together and what have we always said. The folks who who need to listen to that are not paying attention. And the ones who don't need it are the ones that are walking out of the room bawling because it's already impacted them. Right. And it's the same thing with rights of first refusal. They are the people who who have them in their judgment, by and large, in a number of cases, weaponize them. Yeah. <laughs> That's a perfect word. Yeah, You know,
1: there's the ongoing, like, well, should it be like for more if you you know, need childcare for more than two hours? Should it be if it's for more than six hours? If it, like, if, if you folks can't get along well enough to say like, Hey, I got called into work for an emergency today. Do you think you could take the kids? Um, or should I hire a babysitter and you can't have that conversation as co-parents in a productive way and come up with a solution? You shouldn't have a right of first refusal at <laughs> your judgment. Right. So I, I think that's a provision that I see that I would just say, just don't, just don't do it.
0: No, no. In very limited, 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 you know, cases could I see or have I seen rights of first refusal actually be useful? But again, I I think it's sort of what you said at the beginning, the people who can co-parent effectively are not the ones who need them and the ones who can't are the ones that put them in and they become weaponized and and it 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 creates more litigation and more post-judgment drama than it does actually doing anything to fix it or correct it moving forward i think there's this mistaken belief that if we put this in here we're going to we're going to reduce the tension or we're gonna we're gonna eliminate this issue, right? We're not gonna ever have to worry about this because now this other parent is gonna get, you know, if so and so can't exercise their parenting time, you know, if dad can't exercise his parenting time for a set period of time, mom automatically gets the kids. And if mom can't exercise her parenting time, you know, in this context, then dad gets the kids.
1: Well it's I and mean, what does know. it
0: become? we're basically like monitoring the other parents' behavior. We're we're looking to see like keeping tabs on them. What are they doing?
1: Well, for sure. And that's what I was just going to say is to me, it just screams power and control issues. Yep. Like we've got power and control issues all over the place. And this is one of the mechanisms that I'm going to use to exercise power and control and dominion over the other party and to continue to control their behavior, even though they're not going to be my spouse anymore. Um, And it, is a way to remain emotionally married to someone that you are not legally married to anymore.
0: Oh, but right? those those cases, those are the ones.
1: Of course they are.
0: Those are the ones.
1: Of course they are. And they're exactly Can't live with that... you, but
0: I'm not going to live without you.
1: <laughs> you just described my entire mid 20s.
0: <laughs> That's another pod for another day. That's a totally different pod. So, and on- Repent those developmental years, <laughs> episode nine.
1: Um, so on the track of weaponizing, I think the other language that I see that I'm like, so what exactly do you want me to do about this is the non-disparagement language. Um, yes. And I think it's pretty common to see one that says like not disparaging the other parent in front of the kids, but some people try and push it a little bit there.
0: And this is something that you and I have talked about in the past that, and I, I don't think it's been addressed in Michigan yet, but it's certainly something that's been addressed in other states. And I just keep waiting for it to get run up the flagpole here is, you know, whether there are first amendment concerns when you are limiting what a person can say. Right. There was a case that came out in Massachusetts where they were like, we're not, we can't enforce this. This is, this is, you know, a violation of first amendment rights. We're not doing this.
1: Well, I think particularly when it's no disparagement, not just in front of the kids, but to other parties, like to family members or on social media or what, and, and, you know, first of all, truth is an absolute defense, I suppose, for some of the things that people choose to say about their former spouse. Sure. Um, but I don't know that the court, the court, is not generally in a position to do anything about that because they'd have to be sitting there to hear the the disparagement, um, and you know whether or not the kids were in earshot. And I, you know, it's just going to be very difficult to enforce even if it's restricted to being in front of the kids. But certainly when you say. You can't talk to the to my employer about me in a way that I find disparaging, or you can't talk to you know my brother in law or my former brother in law in in a way that would be disparaging. Um, I get the intent. I think probably people shouldn't be disparaging, but I don't know that the court can enforce that.
0: For sure, they shouldn't. And I think the issue is you're using the wrong vehicle. You're trying to be preventative which is understandable when I think the better, more attractive option is to use it to modify someone's custody or parenting time because of their behavior. So there was this, there was a judge that I remember just, you know, would sit in court and would famously hear say something like, you know, I'm not going to babysit and tell you who you get to spend time with, right? So an attorney would say, I want a clause in this, in the divorce that, you know, mom cannot be around Jim Bob. Because we have real issues with Jim Bob. The judge would like, say, I'm not gonna sit there and tell mom she can't hang out with Jim Bob. Right. And so mom's feeling like, oh good, I get it. I'm like this is like a relief. I get to hang out with Jim Bob. And then the judge would turn around and say, But what I am saying is that if you hang out with Jim Bob, that maybe you shouldn't be exercising parenting time.
1: Right. right? Or if you shouldn't you're gonna... be exercising parenting time when Jim Bob is around.
0: Right. And, so you and can I,
1: hang out with Jim Bob 24-7 if you want, but you're not going to see your kids. Correct. Jim Bob's on the registry, and <sighs> Jim Bob has is currently embroiled in a criminal trial, and Jim Bob you know, has right. other issues, and Jim Bob carries an unlicensed weapon, and Jim Bob, like...
0: Right. So, you know what? Maybe, look, the court can't... Like you said, we, we aren't... The court can't be a babysitter, right? The court doesn't know what something, what was said, who it was said in front of, but you can certainly produce evidence showing that somebody is saying things if you can produce those things, right? We've all received the text messages that get introduced of somebody using colorful language to either describe their ex or to their ex. And And sometimes
1: accurately, sometimes it's
0: Sometimes accurately, but again, those things go to some best interest factors. And, and, and your, I think your better resolution is to say, rather than we're going to police this and prevent you from doing it, if you do it, now it's going to be a basis to modify. Maybe you don't necessarily need to share legal custody because you two have demonstrated that you can't work together. You can't co-parent effectively together. And I think those tend to be better deterrents than just a blanket statement of, you can't say this to so-and-so, or you can't say this to, you know, a third party or my, my personal favorite third parties are prohibited from saying things in front of the kids. Like, I mean, shoot, we got people who aren't even parties to a case that are now being limited in terms of what they can well, say. Why like, would
1: that be a problem? Ryan don't, doesn't the court have jurisdiction over everybody who knows the people that they actually have jurisdiction. Yeah.
0: over? <laughs> yeah. Infinite jurisdiction.
1: I, I And that's one of those, like, you know, my brain explodes when I've got attorneys who should know better saying, well, we want an order that prohibits third party from doing A, B or C, whether it's disparagement or whether it's anything it, like I can't, they're not a party, right? They're not subject to the court's jurisdiction in this case. So I can't order a third party to do or not do anything. But it goes Unless to what you, you to try said. Third party them in.
0: But if that third party is is in the presence of a party and is doing something, that's going to reflect on that parent.
1: Well, sure. I mean, if they're trashing mom or dad and the parent, you know, who's not mom or dad just hangs out and lets the kids hear it and doesn't scooch right out of there, then that does reflect on the parent. And that does reflect on my analysis, at least of under the best interest factors of whether or not that parent is capable of fostering a relationship between the children and the other parent, it might reflect on some other factors as well.
0: And we've had those cases, right? I've never said a bad word about my ex-wife, but my current wife just can't stand her and has no ability to control what comes out of her mouth and the children hear it. But you can't punish me because I'm not the one saying it, but I'm not doing anything to prevent my kids from being exposed to it. Right. So.
1: Agree. Agree.
0: (laughs) Are we in agreement that our time is up?
1: We are. I do want to say one thing before we go. Well, probably two things. And one of them is I keep thinking I should mention this and then I never do. And I kick myself. So um, when I was a tiny baby attorney around the same time that I was told no one ever knows what they're doing. They just get better at faking it. um, Sage I (laughs) got a book. That is called Trial Techniques, and the author is Thomas Maudens, Mauet. It's M um, A U E T. And it is step by step, chapter by chapter, everything you need to know to conduct trials and evidentiary hearings. So, not only does it go through like what a good cross exam is, what a good direct exam is, opening statements, closing statements, it goes through every type of evidence whether it be a document or a recording or there, I mean, it's a little older. So I think there's probably some stuff that's not in there. There's probably not stuff specifically about Facebook or Twitter or whatever, but I think you can extrapolate um, and it will take you through like literally step-by-step about establishing the foundation to get those, those exhibits in or like, how do you, maybe your best place to end a cross-examination isn't when the witness can say no to your question. (laughs) Like you, maybe you want to wrap up your cross-examination with, uh, you know, you know, you're going to get a good answer that you want to have. Let that be your last question instead of like kind of having to sit down and put your head down on the desk. It's very good at walking you through all of those scenarios. So if you don't have a mentor, buy that book, which for which we are not advertising and not receiving. Right. We've
0: received, okay. we've received nothing for this plug. No. Ryan's but if you have a book that you want us to plug, we will do that also.
1: No, we're not going to do that. Um, if somebody pays I,
0: us to do it, we absolutely will. That's, that's <laughs> called advertising.
1: Um, but I would recommend that. And it's a good substitute mentor or supplementary mentor, Um, if you feel like you didn't get all that stuff in law school, which most people didn't, um, but that's about it. And then the second thing I wanted to say was, thanks, Ryan. For what? For just showing up today.
0: Oh, no, my pleasure. Happy to be here. (laughs) Bye.